If you're a pop culture junkie who loves TV, film, music, comedy, and other really important stuff, then you've come to the right place. Get ready and settle in for Classic Conversations, the best pop culture interviews in the world. That's right, we circled the globe so you don't have to. If you're ready to be the king of the water cooler, then you're ready for Classic Conversations with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Lori, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get this show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to Classic Conversations, episode 131. As always, I am your host, Jeff Dewaskin. We've got an amazing show for you today. Yes, we do. Brian Kiley is here. That's right. Emmy Award-winning writer, comedian, and actor, Brian Kiley. Over 20 combined appearances on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, Late Night with David Letterman, Conan O'Brien's Late Night Shows. He was with Conan O'Brien from the early 90s all the way to sign off in 2021. We talk all about Conan, including going to The Tonight Show, leaving The Tonight Show, heading over to TBS, the whole shebang. It's all coming up in just a few minutes. Brian Kiley spills it all. For those of you into online dating or have online dated or about to online date, make sure you do not miss episode 130 with Summer Moore because you're going to want to hear all about her web series, Pandemic Pillow Talk, which is all about online dating. She also has an awesome short called As in Kevin all about online dating, hilarious stuff. Check out episode 130. Check out the show notes to that episode. Also, there's links to all her awesome shorts. So definitely check that out. Also, follow Summer Moore on Instagram. As you learned from last week's episode, her Instagram got hacked. Ah! So I'm encouraging everyone to head on over and follow her on Instagram. The link, again, is in the show notes. So check that out. Thank you very much. Oh my God, I got to tell you, I had the greatest, geekiest experience ever this past weekend at the Motor City Comic Con. Greatest time ever. So I had press passes. I got to interview everyone that was at the Comic Con for the Christopher Reeve Legacy Reunion. They had folks from Superman 78. So Superman 1, 2, 3, and 4. It was the 35th anniversary of Superman 4. So I got an interview with Sarah Douglas, Ursa, Krypton, Baddie, Jack O'Halloran, Nan, another Krypton Baddie, Mark McClure, played Jimmy Olsen in all the movies, Aaron Smolinski, Baby Clark Kent, you know which one, when he's a little baby and he holds the car up over his head and he's wearing the red little schmata around his waist because he's a little baby. Mark Pillow, Nuclear Man. I met him. I got a photo, but the sound for that one didn't come out. So, but it happened. Mariel Hemingway, ah! Lacey Warfield in Superman 4. She was awesome. And Robert Venditti and Wilfredo Torres, both artists for the comic book Superman 78. So I'm going to be editing those all together. They're like little short interviews. I'm going to have a Christopher Reeve Legacy Reunion episode. So anyway, that's coming up. I don't know when, but soon in the future. You can look forward to that. It's gonna be awesome. I do want to take a quick second and thank everyone for their support of the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here at Classic Conversations, and that's how we keep the lights on. Today's interview sponsor is Copytown. That's right, Copytown now available in 7,000 locations across the United States. Wherever you're headed, there's a Copytown waiting for you. You got a stack of stuff and you need an identical stack of that stuff? Come to Copytown. We specialize in 100% accurate copies 100% of the time. Got something that you wish you had an exact copy of? Come to Copytown. We'll put it on yellow paper, blue paper, white paper, black paper, any kind of paper you want. We got more paper choices than the local paper mill. Every Wednesday is ladies night at Copytown. Ladies get half off copies. So if you need something identical to the thing you already have, head on down to Capitown. We're here for you 24-7. All right. Well, that's awesome. I'll tell you what else is awesome. My conversation with Brian Kiley. Oh, my God. We talk about Conan. 
We talked Jesse Pop, a comedian friend of mine that I used to do open mics with in Michigan and went on to write for Conan. Brian shares some cool stories about him. And of course, I talked to Brian about his seminal role in Delocated, John Glazer's awesome TV show. So much, so much coming at you. Buckle up because it's coming at you right now. All right, everyone, I'm excited to introduce you to my next guest, Emmy Award winner, writer, comedian, author. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show, Brian Kiley. Hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> Great. I'm so happy to have you here. You are a institution in the comedy world. I'm excited to talk to you about all your time at Conan O'Brien and your Emmy Awards and all that cool stuff and your You've been on what the the late night shows what, 20 times? That's an insane amount of times. Yeah, 20 sometimes. Yeah. Incredible. So tell me what's your origin story in terms of finding that comedy bug and knowing that comedy is where you're gonna go. You know, it's so funny. I I we had this talk one time in the in the Conan writer's room about our childhoods, and we were all comedy nerds, you know, whether it was you know, people have their different things, whether it was Mad Magazine or, you know, SNL or whatever, but we were all comedy nerds from an early age. And I remember being a little kid in elementary school and checking a joke book out of the library and then getting in trouble for not returning it. It's like, hey, you didn't return the joke book or whatever. <laughs> and I feel like I was like obsessed with jokes and stuff as, at an early age. Yeah, I mean, I, I love the Dick Van Dyke show, and, and I saw that he was a comedy writer, and I was like, oh, maybe I could be a comedy writer. And I would watch, you know, when I was a kid, you know, I couldn't stay up late and watch the comedians on Johnny Carson or anything like that, but there'd be a comedian on, like, Mike Douglas or Merv Griffin when I was a little kid, and my mother would be like, you know, I'd be playing outside or whatever, and she'd call me in, and I'd watch the comedian, and I'd go back outside and play or whatever. So I, I think I was always kind of obsessed with comedy, and... You know, my brother and I had like a little mad magazine that a fake mad magazine that we wrote. And I used to write jokes and I'd kept them on little note cards for when I needed them someday. <laughs> and if I, if I ever found those note cards, I'm sure they're long gone. But if I ever found I'm sure those jokes were horrendous. But uh, you have to start somewhere. So even 13 years old or whatever, or 12 or whatever, I was started comedy writing, you know, in my version of what I thought was comedy writing. So I did that. And then when I was in college, I saw a comedy show and the last comedian, Barry Crimmins, I thought he was great. And I went and talked to him and he was running a club called the Ding Ho in Cambridge, Mass. I met with him one day and had a cup of coffee and I brought my, I brought, I typed up a bunch of jokes that I had written. <laughs> he was saying, you know, you could, couldn't make any money in Boston writing. You had to go on stage. And I was like, oh, I could, it was so terrifying. I couldn't. He let me come to the shows, for, which I would do every few weeks. And uh, then I took a comedy class at Emerson College in the summer, taught by Dennis Leary. Really? Yeah. And we did stand up in the class. And then the last class, we invited people in and performed for them. And they encouraged me to keep going. So I started doing open mics when I was in college. And then I started getting some paid gigs. And then after college, uh, I just started doing it full time. And I did it full time for 12 years or something. And then I got hired at Conan. And I kept doing it while I was working at Conan. And they would put me on, somebody would, a guest would cancel. And they'd say, get out there, <laughs> you know, or they'd say, you know, we need you to do the show tomorrow because somebody pulled out at the last minute. And I did the show like 12 times, but only once did they give me a date. The rest of the time was get out there. <laughs> How much extra pressure is that though to not have, because I imagine with the people that do know, you know, they're going over, they're like, yeah, manic thing, right? They're going crazy. Uh, so what what happened is I would finish one, I would do a spot, and then I would the next day I would just start working on a new one. You know what I mean? Sometimes it was good to to not have that lead up, like you didn't have time to get nervous because you didn't know you were going out. You know, so I would keep a suit in my office, and I would always be working on my next set. And sometimes there were times when they'd say, "Hey, can you do the show tomorrow?" And I'd say, "You know, I've only got like two thirds of a set, and whatever." And they go well, you'll be the second guest. <laughs> it's like, And I would literally be writing jokes on the train to do that night. It's like, and sometimes I look at old census. What is that joke? I never heard that joke before, even though it's coming out of my mouth. So that's funny. It's crazy. Is yeah. it stressful though? I mean, to be able to have to, because I mean, I know you're on the show and so it's a thing. Hey, uh, you yeah. know, Brian, just here, get up here. But you're going in front of a national audience. And so, yes. yeah, you know, you <laughs> don't know that you're 
you know, got the suit ready in the back office. It, it's actually a little pressure just because you have to see everybody at work the next day. And you don't want people avoiding eye contact as you walk down the hall. Like, oh boy. You know what I mean? So you always, you wanted to have a good set. You know, it wasn't like doing a hell gig. You felt like the crowd was going to be good. So that you kind of, um, you had that going for you. That is comforting. Wait, let's wait, back up one second though. When you were doing stand-up, your mm-hmm. first influences slash mentors just happened to be Barry Crimmins and Dennis Leary. Well, yeah, it was kind of funny. You know, Crimmins was the first person I met in comedy. You know, we ended up being lifelong friends. You know, he passed away a couple of years ago. You know, what an amazing person to stumble upon. <laughs> you know, no kidding. So, yeah, I mean, he was really, you know, he was such a brilliant guy and he, he kind of evolved. Like when I first knew him, he was just a comedian. And then he kind of morphed into a political comedian. And then he really kind of morphed into a political activist. So uh, he had quite a transformation. He was such a brilliant guy. And I just kind of lucked out that I happened to, he came to my college and I happened to meet him and, and we became friends. And he kind of took me under his wings. So I was very fortunate. No, that's that's incredible. When Bobcat made the movie Call Me Lucky, how, how did you end up being a part of that? Well, you know, Bobcat knew that, that Barry and I were good friends. And I didn't know, I, I knew Bobcat a little bit, because, but when I started in Boston, he, he had already left. Like he, had, he made it so young and so early. I remember a bunch of us went and saw the first Police Academy movie when he was in it. And to have someone that we knew in a movie was, for me, unprecedented. You know, we were so excited. I think he was like 20 years old or something, you know? He was very young when he made it big. So when I used to go to Ding Ho before I started, I would see him performing. So, and we talked a few times and I knew him a little bit, but so he was quickly out of the scene and on to bigger and better things. But when they, who's making that movie about Barry, he knew that Barry and I were good friends. You know, he knew I had some Barry stories. (laughs) So he brought me in on that. Um, when you were coming up, what other people maybe that weren't famous at the moment later became very famous that so you just happened to be in the scene with? Well, it's funny. When I was first starting, so Stephen Wright was just becoming famous when I was starting up. And so he, he he was another one who quickly was gone and, you know, whatever. But I he would come back and, and I would see him at shows and would be working on our jokes and we would always have long joke discussions and whatever. But when, when I moved to the... Um, they opened Catch a Rising Star in Harvard Square in Cambridge. It was Louis C.K. and David Cross and Mark Marin and Laura Keitlinger and Janine Garofalo and so on. So there's a bunch of us there that were all kind of starting out together. They um, did much better than me. Well, you did good. You did good. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And then there were some younger people like Bill Burr and Joe Rogan and Patrice O'Neill and so on and some other people that came up kind of like the class behind me in Boston that we did show, you know. So, I mean, like, you know, like, like Dane Cook opened for me once at a college, which is kind of funny to, to think about in retrospect. That's great, though. Yeah, it's kind of funny where, yeah. So <laughs> I opened for Patrice O'Neill once in Ann Arbor. As a matter of fact, I think the documentary that came out that shows him in Ann Arbor, that was a show I opened for. Oh, nice, and nice. And he was awesome. That was so sad. So sad. Talk about a guy exactly the same off stage as on stage. I mean, he was he was a real deal. He was absolutely. My only connection with Barry Crimmins is that when before he passed away, I realized he followed me on Twitter. So that was a big deal. For oh me. my god, yeah, that's huge. You can the the Twitter follow is uh, you can't beat that. He he wouldn't have done that if he didn't like it what you had put out there. So it speaks highly of you. Now I just got to get Brian Kylie to follow me. <laughs> One step at a time. <laughs> Baby steps, Jeff. Baby steps. So I was watching some of your clips and you're you're super hilarious. Well, and one of your jokes, and I'll slightly butcher it, but I bought a box of animal crackers. The box said, do not eat if seal is broken. I open it up, and sure enough, <laughs> the reason I love that joke so much was because you just stop. <laughs> I always in the conversations I've had with comedians is the pause and then controlling the silence and just letting the audience continue with it is such a thing you need to master. And to me, that joke was you could just watch as they all slowly got the joke. (laughs) While you just stood there going, I'll wait, I'll wait. And I just, I just wanted to kind of appreciate that in front of you for a second. Um, (laughs) Sometimes some crowds I'm still waiting, but 
That'll always be the case, but, <laughs> <laughs> but brilliant. So I did have a question. What was the one where Bruce Willis was seemingly the host? Which show was that? Oh, okay. So that this, <laughs> so this is what happened. So when I was 25, uh, I auditioned for the Letterman show and the producer came up to me afterwards and told me I was very good. And then they called me 17 years later. I didn't even know I was in the running. So I'm working at Conan. I'm at my desk. And Eddie Brill calls me and says, this is a weird question, but can you do the show today? And I was like, yeah, okay. You know, and I had my suit in the, <laughs> hanging on the hook in my office. And he goes, I'll call you back. So he calls me back and he goes, okay, you're on. Dave is sick. Dave had shingles. So Bruce Willis is supposed to be the first guest. So now Bruce Willis is hosting. So he said, Dave is sick. Bruce Willis is hosting. Don't tell anybody. I said, okay. No, no. He said, so he said that, whatever. He said, Dave is sick. Bruce Willis is hosting. So, okay. So I hang up. I tell the guy I shared an office with, Dave is sick. They asked me to host. Bruce Willis is host. Eddie Bill calls me back. Don't tell anyone that Dave is sick. And Bruce Willis, it's like, well, the cat's out of the bag now. He <laughs> didn't tell me. But that was one of those things of, I didn't know I was going to be on. It was one o'clock in the afternoon. I, I walked over there at, you know, four o'clock and they, I was like, okay, just do your best five. And I don't think, you know, when I was 25, I just, I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. And I think I would have been too nervous and not, I don't know that it could have gone well, but by the time I finally did get on at that point, I was like, okay, well, if I can't do it now, you know, so, and then, then they would call me at the last minute too. <laughs> Somebody would cancel or something. So it wasn't until I moved to Los Angeles that they would actually like, okay, we actually have to give him a date because we can't get him at the last minute now. So I think how highly they must think of you as a comic. I mean, that is the, to put the trust to say, oh, we can trust Brian Kiley at the last second. Cause I imagine they vet those, everything I've, I've ever heard. They vet. They vet your sets. Absolutely. And, and, but you know, it's funny because I have, you know, I had a friend who years ago, the tonight show wanted to do that, have him be their last minute guy. And he said, no, it's too nerve wracking or whatever. And to me as a comic, like you, you work your whole career to get on that. Do you know what I mean? So if you're a ball player and you're in triple A and the big club calls you up to the play in the majors, you're not going to go, no, I need more notice or whatever. You're going to you know, you're like, yeah, I'm pitching today. Okay. You know, whatever. So, you know, that's what you've been dreaming of to me your whole career. So, you know, I just kind of looked at it as an opportunity and, and I was always excited. I remember there was one time I was doing a, a fundraiser for the PTA at our little town in, in Westchester. And my wife was the VP of the PTA. So they call me the night before and they say, hey, can you do Letterman tomorrow? Whatever. So I tell my wife, she's, oh, you can't do it. You've got to do this PTA show. I'm like, um, uh, spoiler alert, I'm doing the Letterman show. I don't know what you're talking about. But and actually, it ended up being the coolest thing because they offered me a car, a, a car service. So I did the Letterman show. They put me in a limo. And then I show up to the, to the PTA meeting in a limo and get out to do it. It's like, that couldn't have worked out better. It's like, uh, I'll, you know, all these soccer dads that, that uh, didn't think much of me was like, well, I'm in a limo now, buddy. <laughs> yeah, check out this ride. Exactly. And then thankfully, your wife's bake sale didn't tank. <laughs> she never would have let you down. That's true. Let, you, let, it, let that down. When you worked at Conan, did you know Jesse Pop? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Great guy. Jesse's from Michigan, yeah. His submission was because, you know, people when people would submit their packets, you know, they they try to get hired as a monologue writer. So everyone's got their monologue jokes. And there are some people that they have a bunch of jokes that you kind of think, yeah, we, we'd do that joke, you know. But at the same time, we also would have thought of it. Do you know what I mean? What I loved about Jesse's packet was like some people, it's almost like a, I have to use a baseball analogy where they there's a ton of singles in there. But it's like, OK, but we could get these hits. And Jesse would have these home runs that you're like, OK. We never would have thought of that. I remember there was some joke about there was I'm talking about butchering jokes, but there was a house somewhere where people were away and they came back and it was infested with like 8000 snakes or something like that. And then there was a joke of in snake news party at Steve's house this weekend or something like that. (laughs) And it was such a clever joke and so off the wall. And it's like, well, none of us would have come up with that. (laughs) You know, know, none of us are looking at that joke from the snake's point of view. (laughs) I always enjoyed Jack, Jesse's uh, comedy. Yeah, Jesse, all the comedians in Michigan, we would love to go listen to Jesse. There was one time where Jesse was opening for, it was a Comedy Central tour, it was Mitch Hedberg, Dave Attell, and Louis Black. 
Oh my gosh, incredible. Jesse was like the local opener guy. And the thing that I remember to this day, he does his set, does well. And then Mitch Hedberg comes out and is like, that Jesse is one droll motherfucker. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, the time, you know, Mitch, it was just like, I was like, oh, he could have said something like that about me. That would be like the highlight of my Oh life. my God, yeah. That's so <laughs> funny. That's great. Before we dive into Conan even more, you worked with John Glazer. Is that how you met John Glazer? Sure. So funny. He was he he did so many funny bits on Conan, and he's one of these guys that most of us are are either we have one a strength. We either good at writing or good at perform. You know, he's one of these he's one of these few guys that are just he's equally as talented as a writer as he is a as a performer. So. He did some great bits for us. You know, he was, I always loved his stuff. Yeah, he's he's hilarious. So you were on Delocated season one. Yes, he, he, he put me on the show, which was so nice of him. Um, you know, I played his boss at the copy shop. And, and you know, I was so honored to, to have somebody cast me in a, in a show as, you know, playing out something other than myself. Delocated is a hilarious show. You can watch it on Amazon Prime if you have Amazon. John Glazer plays a guy in the witness protection program. I asked John Glazer when I interviewed him, I'm like, how did you even get to, how did you do this pitch? It's me, but I'm wearing a mask the whole time. So no one ever knows it's you. <laughs> he moves the family to New York and then he does a reality show. Brian plays Rick, the copy guy. <laughs> there's, there's short episodes. They're like 11 minute episodes. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, that was a really cool thing when they had the premiere, you know, my kids were little and they came to the, you know, and I think they were so excited to, go to a premiere of a TV show and see the dad in it and all that stuff. You know, it was really, I, I feel like I'm indebted to Glazer forever. Did you do any writing on the show or just perform? No, no, it was, um, I, I was still working at Conan and whatever, and they were working on the show and, and, um, it was, it's actually fun. It's so much fun to just actually go. I mean, it, it was a lot of improv and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. I had a blast. I had a blast. And he, he kept finding new clever things within that, within the concept, you know, it's amazing. So why weren't you in season two or three? I think it's because I moved. I think we moved. I think it was when we moved to L.A., as I recall, because I could be wrong about the dates. But as I recall, when the when the show moved to, to L.A., you know, I couldn't just stop by and <laughs> and do that anymore. So uh, and I had a pretty heavy Conan schedule. So I think there was one week where they they were going to have me come back. And then the week got pushed and then I was back working at Conan and couldn't do it or something. So. That makes sense. So you, you had to prioritize Conan, PTA. Yeah. <laughs> PTA first, please. And then John Glazer's. <laughs> I, I got a kick out of it. I was, when, I, when I was looking at your IMDb and I'm like, oh my God, that's right. <laughs> it's, it's always fun. Like you forget and then you. Sure, like, oh, sure. Yeah. Oh my God, that was him. All right. So you're, you're doing all these appearances on Conan O'Brien's show. And is that how, did you just evolve from that to becoming one of the writers on the show or was there more of a um you still had to submit your packet while you were kind of being featured as, as a comedian as well oh no so i actually got hired first as a writer before i got on conan i knew some of the comics writers from boston uh, my friend tom agna and chuck sklar and louis ck were all writing on the show and somebody got fired and at the time i was doing a lot of topical jokes so if i did 45 minutes back in those days probably 25 minutes or so was stuff uh, from the news. So they knew I was writing those kind of jokes. So they contacted me and said, hey, can you submit a packet? So I typed up some jokes from my act that I'd been doing the last couple of weeks. And I, you know, I just wrote some stuff from the newspapers in those days. And I submitted it and they said, uh, yeah, you start tomorrow. And the show was very shaky in the beginning. So I thought I was just getting this job for 13, you know, you had 13 week contracts. So I thought I was, you know, okay, we'll do this for 13 weeks or maybe 26 weeks or whatever. And there were constant rumors about the show being canceled and who was going to replace Conan and all that stuff. But the show just kept hanging in there and hanging in there. And then uh, he was on for years. So I kind of lucked out. Right. So Late Night with Conan O'Brien debuts in 93. You joined 94? I did. Yeah. The Ides of March in 94. The Ides of March. So when Light Night with Conan O'Brien aired, the reviews panned. He even wrote, I think, something. Sure. And like you said, they kept, I think the NBC kept threatening to put Greg Kinnear in. Yep. At what point during those initial years, so from 94 to 2009, 
where it finally became this, you know, just cultural thing. When did it start to shift? Like what, what was happening? What grooves were you hitting? I think when we first got nominated for an Emmy, that was kind of like, hey, we somebody's acknowledging that they like the writing on the show and that the, the like that the show, you know, for us to get nominated kind of because we were nominated the first couple of years, but it was almost like, hey, somebody decided, you know, we kind of allowed us in the club or something that somebody that was kind of an acknowledgement that the show had reached a certain level or something, I guess. Uh, so I, I feel like that did it. And, you know, they gave us a primetime special for the fifth anniversary. And as we started hitting these anniversaries and it's like, hey, we've, we've kind of been on for a while, <laughs> you know. But I, I do think I do feel like getting a, getting some validation from the Emmy people made us feel like, hey, you know, one time we were watching the Today Show and the critic from TV Guide was on and he said, Conan has the best writers on TV. And it was like what? <laughs> That's us? You know, so we started to get some good press after after a few, after a few years of not so good, so, so good press. I read a quote from Tom Shales called it the one of the most amazing transformations in television history. You know, even though Conan, you know, can you imagine learning stand-up comedy on national television? Like those are your open mics. It's, uh, you can't, you know, you can't imagine it, but, you know, it takes so long to, to get good at stand-up. Every day in the office, he would be unbelievably hilarious. You saw what a brilliant guy he was. So even though he was nervous on the air and, and wasn't polished and whatever, just from seeing him off camera, we knew it's like, oh, this is a, actually a brilliant guy. Once he kind of figures it out, he's going to be amazing. We were fortunate in seeing how funny he was off stage. So that's your motivation to keep going. Yeah, I mean, I think we were all because people would <laughs> people would badmouth Conan to us in the beginning. But we kind of had this secret of like, oh, you don't realize this is the funniest guy in the world. You wait till he gets comfortable on stage and, and gets some experience. And we kind of felt like he was going to be great, just a matter of time. Right. And it's not like he's a, a newbie. I mean, this Conan was on Sunday, writer for Sunday Live. It was a writer for The Simpsons. Absolutely. Absolutely. So he had, you know, he had a, a track record as a writer, but also just in the office, I've never seen anyone funnier. So I was really blown away by uh, how brilliant he was. Amazing. And not shocking at all to hear that. <laughs> Let me ask you about monologue writing. So in your sense where you have maybe 25 minutes of your act as you're going in is is of the day, right? Yes. You have the luxury to say, well, I'm going to do most of these things until they kind of die in the vine in terms of the news cycle and then kind of filter them in as, as you want. So maybe on a Monday you do one, on a Tuesday you throw a 30-second new thing in, right? Absolutely. So, how is it going in day to day? I, I, I can't even imagine how many jokes you have to churn out. And I don't want to say force the inspiration, but now you're getting paid. It's a whole different thing, right? How, yes. that, how did that whole thing work? Well, it's funny because I, you know, as a comic, I would try to write like five jokes a day. And I thought, okay, I'm hard work, you know. And here, when you suddenly have to write 40 jokes a day, you're like, what? <laughs> you know, and also... Say you had a great joke in your act about Michael Jackson. Well, you do that as a stand-up. You do it every night and it would do well and, you know, it's part of your, your act or whatever. But here it was like, okay, you had a great joke on Michael Jackson on Monday. The next day he wants another great joke on Michael Jackson. You're like, what about the one I gave you? <laughs> you know? And, well, we did that. So now you need a new one. So you have to write, you know, you end up having to write 50 Michael Jackson jokes for television as opposed to the one that you had in your act. You know what I mean? So that's the hardest part to me is to have to keep replicating, to keep going back to the same well over and over and over again and try to find something new, that's where it gets tricky. And especially those days in the beginning, we didn't have, the internet hadn't started. You know, I feel so old saying this, but we were reading newspapers and looking through and stuff. So, you know, sometimes the news was just tragedy. And I remember when they had the Oklahoma City bombing, it was right around Jackie Onassis died and the news was just so awful. And he would come out and they had the little state-by-state things in the USA Today. And he'd come out and be like, hey, did you hear about this comptroller in Des Moines, Iowa? And then was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, but we couldn't talk about anything. There was so much tragedy in the big news. So it's gotten a little better now with the Internet because there's more sources and more ways to find other stuff. 
at the same time, it's, I think it's actually much harder now because everyone's tweeting jokes on Twitter. So, you know, sometimes I'd write a joke at nine and then at three o'clock they go, oh, somebody put that same idea on Twitter. And you're like, but I, I came up with it first, <laughs> you know, but it's old news by that time. So I think it's very hard to write monologue now because so many people are writing jokes on Facebook or Twitter off the news. I was going to ask you about that because right, you, you hear that all the time, like, you're watching Bill Maher or something, you know, like these, especially these once a weekers, and like, and then it's like, oh, that joke's been done fifty times already, you know? It's, it's yeah, and, and I'm sure when they wrote it, it was fresh, and it's just and that's, you know, I, I think it's very challenging now to write topical jokes. So when you're writing, are you writing trying to mimic Conan O'Brien's voice, or do you write it in your voice, or some hybrid, and knowing that Conan will adapt it if as he's reading it, he'll. Well, you, you're trying to write it in his voice. I mean, he'll a lot of times he'll take it and and he might tweak it a little bit or rewrite it a little bit and try to put it more. But you are trying to write. You do have that his voice in your head as you're writing them, and you know. But I mean, you have to learn his voice. You know, there are comics that people that would write funny jokes for, and it's like, well, that that's a funny joke, but that's too sarcastic for Conan, or it's too pointed, or it's too heavy-handed, or it's too uh, the references too obscure, or whatever. So you know. When you work for somebody in a while, you find out what the things they like and don't like and that kind of thing. And I used to do a lot of sort of wordplay jokes. He hated those. So I had to learn <laughs> not to do that. You know, when I was first started, there was a, a story about a woman had given birth on the New York City subway and they wrapped the baby in the Sunday New York Times. And I said, you know, ironically, it was the C-section. Uh, well, I thought it was a cute joke and whatever. No, wordplay, corny, blah, 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 whatever. And you're like, oh, hmm, okay. So I stopped writing wordplay jokes. He kind of beat them out of me. And I stopped writing them for my act even because, you know, you just, you learn. He doesn't like that kind of thing. So you you stop going there. So it does take a, although I did learn his, get his voice pretty quickly. We have a lot of overlap in terms of our sensibilities and stuff, fortunately. But there's definitely, you learn to write for the host voice hopefully if you're going to make it depending on whatever show you are, you've got to, you have to replicate best as possible the, the voice of the host. So when you're writing that many jokes every day for Conan and in Conan's voice, do you lose a little bit of your own voice? Like how do you, how do you maintain your voice as well as a comedian? Well, you know, what I did early on is I decided it's like, okay, I'm going to give him everything topical and I'm just going to write personal stuff for me. So I never wanted to have that dilemma of, ooh, do I keep this joke for my act or do I give it to him? <laughs> do you know what I mean? So all the stuff off the news. So I stopped, I lost about 25 minutes of material when I started because I was like, I stopped doing topical stuff, but then I had to build up my, my act. But I, I kind of kept the division of those two and, and the stuff with, so you can have your own voice when you're talking about your own life and whatever. So that way you keep it you're able to keep yourself in there. Well, I can imagine though it be it could be it wouldn't be crazy to think like you, somebody comes to see you and you're like, oh, you sound you sound like Conan now. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. You know, one night he came on and he was kind of mimicking me, <laughs> and he even said on the air, "It's like, oh, I'm channeling Brian." <laughs> um, and he does he would do this bit sometimes in the dressing room where. He would do an impression of me doing stand-up with my mannerisms and my demeanor, but he would be doing the filthiest act you ever heard. <laughs> Certainly not my act, but he would just do uh, he would just do this parody of me, but but me being filthy, and people always <laughs> people always loved the bit where he was uh, doing the filthy version of me. That is funny and such an honor to have Conan O'Brien. It was. It was. <laughs> And there were times when he would meet other comics out, out, out so somewhere and they'd be like, you got to do the impression of Blue Kylie for me. <laughs> so, yes, I was very honored that he would do an impression of me. <laughs> Blue Kylie. That's awesome. It even had a nickname. That's great. Yep. When Late Night with Conan O'Brien was coming to an end and you guys were all going to transition to The Tonight Show mm -hmm. with Conan O'Brien, which I know was his dream. He always wanted to host The Tonight sure. Show didn't end dreamy. What was your point of view kind of going in and, and your feelings when you knew you were going to be part of that whole Tonight Show world? I thought he was going to be hosting the Tonight Show for 20 years, you know? And I kind of looked at it like he followed David Letterman as a complete unknown and was able to make it work. I thought after all that experience and he was famous by this point that, that he'd be able to, uh, that it would 
work okay. And, you know, there was a lot of a variety of circumstances, I think, that were kind of conspiring against us at that time. It was, I have to say that The Tonight Show was very stressful because really we were, he was doing, you know, The Tonight Show had this history of doing long, long monologues. So now he's doing 15 jokes instead of six jokes or whatever. So, you know, now I'm writing 70 jokes a day and it was never enough. The hole was, we always needed more jokes and the hole was never filled. I remember the best day I ever had, one day I got seven jokes on. That's a lot of monologue jokes in one day. It was for me and it wasn't enough. We still need more. It's like, you know, I just had the best day I've ever had and it's not good. You know, I really did have a knot in my stomach the whole time because it was, it was, it was the output was just so much and there was so much scrutiny. And, you know, with the New York show, some days would be having a good day and would be in good shape. And I'd give my dad a call in Florida to see how he was doing or whatever. You know, my dad was an older guy. And with the Tonight Show, I, there was never once a day where you could take a break. Like, I never called my dad once, you know. like but, And by the time I'd get home at 7.30 or 8, he's long in bed, you know. It was just, it was really a pressure cooker. And I thought it would eventually dissipate as as the show went on but we get we end up going off the air <laughs> before we ever got to relax well it seems that the network couldn't let go of their jay leno crutch yeah all right and so yeah. what were you <laughs> did you guys have dartboards with jay leno's face on it and stuff like that no i think everybody thinks that we're like you know whatever i mean i think we've all moved on i i, feel, I do feel, i would feel bad for conan where a guest would come on the show you know when he was hosting a tbs show and they'd bring the whole thing up and he would just kind of dismiss it and move on. And then the critics would be, oh, Conan's still talking about that. It's like, no, he's not still talking about it, you know? He's moved on with his life, but he can't control something if a guest brings it up and he would quickly move on. But, you know, I, I do think... Well, how did you feel and the staff feel? Not, not necessarily Conan about it. Well, I, I, I think we... The problem was, to me... It was a much bigger audience. Like, I, I mean, not only the home audience, but our studio audience was too big. Like, I, I think, you know, like if, if, you, if people do stadium shows, not that we were doing a stadium show, but when comics do stadium shows, their comedy is very broad and big and whatever. And when you're an intimate club, you can be subtle and, and, and have nuances. And I think that was the kind of comedy we did. I think Conan, I think we're better served when he's hosting a show for... 170 people as opposed to 450 people or whatever, because I think, I, I think a lot of the subtlety and, and, and so on is, which is more of her, his humor, you know, it was, it's one of those things that's, it's like a, it's, it's like a messy divorce looking back on it. It was, it's still sort of painful. And, you know, but I, I do think the TBS show kind of reflected more of our sensibilities humor wise. You know, I think he wasn't really a monologist to go out there and do 15 or Funny jokes, you know, that's really not what he was about. And, you know, I think trying to, with the tonight show, you kind of sort of doing someone else's show in a way, because it has this, these expectations where when we went on the TBS show, the show was called Conan, we could do whatever we want, because there's sort of no history there or whatever. It sounds like moving back to this Conan on TBS format was better, not only for everybody, but your relationship with your father and family at the time as well. So you could call everybody. I, you know, I would come home like just wiped out with, and I can actually come home like a normal person. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I think the stress was very, uh, very intense. Yeah. How did you feel um, with the show ending? Oh, the TBS show ending? The TBS show ending. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, it's, I was very sad, you know, and I, I was at 27 years and it's sort of this mixture of, you know, you're grateful to have a job for 27 years in TV, but you're still sad when it comes to an end. You know, we, I really, the writing staff, I really enjoyed everybody. And we, you know, the, this past year with the pandemics, we would have Zoom meetings every day, but that was the highlight of my day. You know, the people, you go in the meetings and the, everybody's funny and you, you enjoy all your coworkers. And it was really, you know, I was so fortunate to, you know, Conan and, and Andy are incredibly hilarious and and the other writers are, and so i really laughed a lot every day and i was I, i'm i was very fortunate to have that you know, experience you know that's awesome so as as head monologue writer how many people did you have writing monologue jokes you know i feel bad when people say that 
with with the Tonight Show, we, you know, we had six monologue writers, so we kind of need they needed kind of a point person. And often I would meet with Conan alone at like 11 a.m. to kind of say, okay, what are we going to talk about today? And even before we shown him any jokes, so and then with but our staff got smaller when we went to the TBS show and then some people left. So by the end, it was just Laurie Kilmartin, who's a brilliant comic. It was just her and me writing the monologue. So people like, oh, you're the head of monologue writer. It's like, look, it's just Laurie and me. And <laughs> I don't have any special duties. <laughs> you know, it's and I can assure you, I'm not bossing Laurie around. So it's almost like my that, that title was kind of grandfathered in, in a way <laughs> from the Tonight Show days. But yeah, I mean, we're all just writers. And, and I mean, the head writer is actually he's in charge of picking the sketches. And I, I think I'm more of a figurehead as I guess is what I'm trying to say. Got it. And I agree. Lori Kilmartin is great. I had the opportunity to work with her once. She wrote a tag for one of my jokes. So I can attest to her amazingness. Nice. Nice. And that doesn't surprise me at all. Did you also write skits? Uh, I would occasionally. Yes. When the show was five days a week, I, I just really didn't have time to do it. When it was four days a week on that off day, sometimes I would write some sketches and so I wrote, and sometimes what would happen is I would come up with the initial idea, and then one of the sketch writers would, would uh, fill it out or whatever. But yeah, I, I, I did write some sketches from time to time, you know, more so in the past year because he wasn't doing a monologue. Yeah, it's much harder. Yeah, it, that, was, that was a little harder for me. But it was, we had a bit one time where they had outlawed straws in California. So we had a bit where... Uh, this is, you know, there's a guy doing a mountain of cocaine and the co- cops burst in and they take the straw away from him. He's got this and they leave, you know, they cart him off in handcuffs, but they leave the, the cocaine because, yep, he's using a straw, you know. Awesome. And that sketch is hilarious. That's on your website, actually. I laughed my ass off watching that. Oh, good, good. And there was a bit that we did about Conan trying to bring back the word thrice. Because it used to be once, twice, thrice is such a handy word. You don't hear it very often. And then we would have sketches where people would be using the word thrice. So, and that was a running gag for a little while. So, I think that would be amazing to bring that word back. Yeah, absolutely. Why? How could? How could it ever leave? I don't understand. Some mysteries will never be solved. <laughs> Who are some of your favorite guests you got to meet on the show? Like personal favorites? Like- sure, sure. Well, you know, it's so funny because. There's a lot of actors and stuff that I really like, and I didn't meet them because what would I have to say to them? You know, if I met Harrison Ford, be like, hey, I'm you know, it's like, okay, <laughs> you know what I mean? And he, I'm sure I hear that a million times a day, and who cares, or whatever. But I remember when Henry Winkler was on, he had written these children's books that my kids loved, and it was for like eight to eight to 10 year olds or whatever. And I would read them to my kids, and they would read them on their own, and they would crack, and they just loved them. And I kind of thought, I felt like this probably would mean something to him if I told him because, you know, if I said, hey, the Fonz, hey, he'd probably want to murder me. But I just met him and I just said, you know, I just want to say my kids, we read your, it's called the Hank Zipser stories. And I said, my kids love your books and we, you know, they laugh and they read them on their own. And it was, you know, which as a parent, you love when your kid's actually reading, you know. And I just told him how much they enjoyed it. And he seemed very touched or whatever. And then a couple weeks later, I get in the mail. He sends me three of his books, autographed to my kids. It was just so nice of him to do that, you know. Um, so when people ask me who my who my favorite guest is, I always say Henry Winkler. That was amazing. Henry Winkler is the greatest person in the world. I've never heard one person ever say anything bad about Henry Winkler. I've had the opportunity to meet him twice, once at an event and once at a Comic-Con. And then I was on a kind of a a clubhouse thing. And I got to ask him a question and my goodness, he is the nicest guy. I have a eight by 10 of his, that he wrote, Jeff is cool. You know, so I got a picture of the Fonz that says Jeff is cool. Oh, that's awesome. Well, he, he does seem, I, I have, I've never heard a bad word about him. He seems so beloved and, and I'm glad that he's, that, you know, he's on the show Barry, which is so great. And you know, yeah, he's awesome. That is awesome. So I'm happy. I'm happy for your kids that they got those books. Those are, sometimes it's sometimes it's easier to. I know he did it, and you didn't know, but some, that is one of the backdoor tricks: is to add, hey, my kids. You know? <laughs> <laughs> is there anybody who you uh, and you don't have to answer if you don't want to? Anyone that you're like, you just just caused such mayhem. Well, it it didn't have anything to do with me. So if there was somebody that did, I'm sure there's some guests that Conan was like, you know, whatever. But. I had very little interaction with him. Sometimes, you know, I'm from Boston and sometimes 
a Boston sports hero would be on the show. So I'd get to meet that person or whatever. But generally speaking, even guests I love, I kind of shied away from because I didn't have anything to <laughs> interest of interest to say. You know, I did have to like when the Red Sox won the World Series and they had guys. It's like okay, I got to meet this guy or whatever. And it's so funny. It, I met when Jesse Pop was on the show. Uh, Justin Verlander was on, and Pop's a big uh, Tigers fan. He and I. Jesse's so shy. I, I actually was kind of like, oh, you know, Mr. Verlander, this guy, you know, whatever, and we met him or whatever. And I turned around, Jesse shook his hand, and I turned around, and Jesse was gone. <laughs> he was so shy that I'm standing there with Verlander. It's like, wait, you're the Tigers fan. Where did you go? But I think he was too, uh, I think he was too overwhelmed to meet this, this star. Before Verlander left Michigan, left the Detroit Tigers, he was dating... I think he's since married to Kate Upton. So this is this is just to give you an idea of how much I am in touch with sports and sports figures. We're at a place in Birmingham, Michigan, a restaurant. I turn, I go, oh my God, that's Kate Upton. So that must be Justin Verlander. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah, that was that's the best I could do. Well, that the hat the hat fooled me. Well, you know, it's I love I love the Tigers. I love the idea of going to the the games and I love all the Detroit sports. I just don't know any of the specifics. I love it. Like I watch a movie. I don't know all the stats. I can just enjoy it. Sure. Sure. <laughs> Which uh, is weird, but uh, I don't know. I just didn't, uh, my, I didn't grow up. My dad didn't train me in the way of the sports. Sure, my, sure, wife, sure. my wife loves it though. Oh, that's great. That's huge. That's huge. The fact that she gets me every Sunday is, is fine. <laughs> So cool. So one last Conan question. So you credited his writer for the White House Correspondents Dinner when he uh, did it for Obama. Mm-hmm. Is there any of the zingers that you remember you wrote that he said? Well, I remember he did it for Clinton too early on. With the Clinton, I'm trying to think. With the Clinton one, I remember Sonny Bono was in the in Congress then, so he was there. And he did a joke about, you know, I'm walking the streets of Washington, D.C., and these are the streets that were walked by, you know, Jefferson and Madison and Adams and Bono. And they cut to Sonny Bono. And just that was a fun experience to cut to like we didn't we never had that before because he would do jokes about these people, but they weren't there. Do you know what I mean? So and then there was a joke about there was a joke about uh, term limits and Strom Thurmond saying, I've been, in, I've been in favor of term limits since 1910 or something like that. But what I remember about that joke was Conan bumped into Bob Dole the next day and Bob Dole's like, oh, I like that joke about the term limit. <laughs> of all jokes for him to pick, a guy was in the Senate forever. But that was kind of funny. And what Obama would do was very interesting. He would, you know, they'd do a joke and they'd cut to Obama laughing. And I saw this with the other, with the other people when the other years when somebody, because Somebody was on a year or two after Conan, and they did some kind of dicey jokes that, that, that were kind of Obama slams that you could tell he wasn't into. And Conan didn't do that, but whoever that was. And they would cut to Obama. Instead of him, he would just be pouring a glass of water. Like, I don't know what's going on over there. I'm so busy pouring this water for myself, you know? And it was such a – which I kind of thought was an ingenious way of deflecting an awkward moment. That is pretty ingenious, yeah. I'm sorry, I can't think of any specifics now, but I do. Uh, it was it was really fun to have him do a joke that of yours, and then they catch the president laughing. It's like that's a that was a pretty cool thing. That's awesome. Well, thanks. I appreciate all these stories. So many great. It's so um, interesting to hear about just the whole your history with Conan and all that kind of stuff. I where can where can people keep up with you on the socials? Uh, they can follow me on Twitter at, at Kylie Noodles. Call Conan makes fun of my skinny legs and calls me noodles. So that's where that came about. And then I'm just on Instagram at Brian Kylie comic, although my Instagram feed is pretty lame, but, um, or they can go to BrianKiley.com and, and, um, I haven't done much with my website since COVID, but, <laughs> but I need to, uh, I, I need to kind of, uh, now that we're coming out of it, uh, get back to that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I can't thank you enough for hanging out with me. It was, sure, Jeff, it was, so, it was so fun. This really flew by. So thank you. Thank you. All right. How awesome was Brian Kiley? So cool, right? Right? I know. I know. So cool. Go follow him on the socials. Do your thing, everybody.
Well, with the interview over, that can only mean one thing. That's right. It's time for another trending hashtag from the family of hashtags at hashtag roundup. Follow us on Twitter at hashtag roundup. Download the free, always free, never cost a penny app called hashtag roundup at the iTunes app store or Google Play store. Receive notifications every time a game goes live. Tweet along with us, and one day one of your tweets may show up on a future episode of Classic Conversations. Fame and fortune await you. This week's hashtag, we're going back, back into the Twitter archives. 2018, four years ago. Hashing with fam brought us hashtag fast food a comedian. That's right, I'm in a comedian mood. So let's do a mashup game with comedians and fast food. I guess I'm also hungry. You know how the mashups work. You just take a comedian, you take a fast food, mash them together, and hilarity ensues. All right, let's take a let's read some of these hashtag fast food a comedian tweets. Fozzie the Bear Claws, Colonel Sandler, Wanda Shakes, Rodney Danger Fries. You get it? You get it? The mashup hashtag fast food a comedian. Let's keep it rolling. Norm McDonald's, John Cleesberger, Richard Fryer. Would you like fries with that fan? Red Robin Williams. Amazing hashtag fast food of comedian tweets, but we're not done. Pizza Davidson. They messed up her order. Now Kathleen's mad again. Ah, Laurel and Hardy's. Kit Kat Williams. And our final hashtag fast food of comedian, Betty White Castle. Oh, all right. There you have it. All those tweeters will be retweeted at Jeff Jawaskin show on Twitter. Go show him some love. Tweet your own hashtag fast food, a comedian tweet. I'll show you some love. Tag me on it and we'll go from there. All right. Well, with that hashtag done, the interview over. It can only mean one thing. Oh, my goodness. Episode 131 has come to an end. I want to thank my special guest, Brian Kiley. And of course, I want to thank all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me, and I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Classic Conversations. If you like what you heard, don't be shy and give us a follow on your favorite podcast app. Also, why not go ahead and tell all your friends about the show? You strike us as the kind of person that people listen to. Thanks in advance for spreading the word, and we'll catch you next time on Classic Conversations. Classic Conversations.